Galatians chapter 4. The sheet you are going to get has a, I mean, it's basically a sheet of scripture references. And I'm really just going to pick up on one idea in Galatians chapter 4 that gets reinforced in these others and begins uh, the theme of, of this sermon. But let us hear God's word from Galatians chapter 4, uh, starting at verse 8 and reading through verse 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. And that ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. We've been looking, obviously, uh, at this biblical teaching of union with Christ. We've said several things about it. Just from the sheer number of references in Paul's epistles, it's obviously an absolutely foundational, uh, critical teaching that he sought to have the churches understand. And we have come to the conclusion, uh, Elder Harmon uh, preached on aspects of it, and I have as well, drawing connections to the New Covenant prophesied, drawing therefore connection into the Old Testament, speaking about a certain um, uh, mysticalness of it, the, uh, really a mystery, better stated, uh, that which has been revealed of Christ in you, Paul will say in Galatians, or excuse me, in Colossians 1, we've referred to that. And the real reason I read uh, this text was that interesting way that Paul speaks about how he is in anguish again and how he's seeking to labor. And in this very letter 
minister to the Galatians. And the way he summarizes that is in that statement in verse 19. I'm laboring until Christ is formed in you. And that begins to introduce the lesson for tonight that we'll be working on. If you had the bulletin or were here this morning, you know, the title was read. Yeah, this is the fifth sermon in this. And by the way, we'll probably have two, maybe three more, um, because uh, there's still a couple of aspects to relate to. But um, last time we answered the question, union with Christ, uh, who am I? And we understood that we do not draw uh, our understanding of who I am from aspects of this world. We're not going to draw it from our personal history, so whatever the historical events are, whether they are marvelous things of heritage and, and such from generations and, and great education and such, or whether they are horrible life experiences. We're not going to do it from that. We're not going to do it from earthly accomplishments. Uh, we're, we're not going to draw our identity from some aspect of this world order because the new age has broken in and we are people in Christ. If we have trusted in him, we are in Christ with what that means to be saved. So in, so in that, maybe if you had a cup entitled In Christ, in it would be those various blessings of, of justification by faith, the forgiveness of sins, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit to have a, a new life given to us, to be regenerated, a new heart, to be part of the church of God and to, to have a, an enduring hope and, a, and our names written in the Lamb's book of life and all of those blessings. Well, tonight... And there would be various ways to answer this question, but we're going to link it again with union with Christ. I'm asking the question, so if that's who I am, then what am I here for? And I'm going to keep this basically looking at the individual Christian because one of the sermons we want to get to is union with Christ, this teaching has much to say about corporate life, too. But for tonight, we're just going to be looking at, you might say, the, how the individual Christian might answer the question, what am I here for? And you'll see, I, I, I'm going to expound this out later. But by the way, and, and this is a very close question to the question in the catechism, the first question, what is man's chief end? And so this is a similar question to that. And, and if you said, what am I here for? I'm here to glorify God. Well, that's certainly true. That is certainly an accurate answer. By linking it to union with Christ, you see a basic statement. To be, what am I here for? To be like Jesus in my life which interestingly means I will be, you might say what I'm made for, I will be my true self. And I've just listed some things here, some texts that I think have application. Look at, uh, I'm just going to kind of go through these. Romans 8.28. You know, most people have well memorized Romans, excuse me, 
on the paper 829. Most people have memorized 828 uh, about uh, all things working together for good, for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But 29 continues it and says, for those whom God foreknew, he foreknew, he predestined to be, look at the language, conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Romans 13, a little later in the same letter, in a very uh, application-rich section of Romans 13, he first of all says, let us walk properly, let's not do certain things, not in orgies, etc. But look at the positive expression. Verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We see, you're beginning to see a link. We've made the statement through Alexander McLaren, union with Christ means that Christ is literally present in the believer. He says it is a plain, literal fact, if you understand biblical religion. And therefore, our lives would obviously, I mean, we even use that language. If the life of Christ is in me, then how do I live? And obviously, there is this link. So I've mentioned Galatians 4.19. Ephesians 2.10 is something similar. We are, at this point, considered God's um, uh, creation, His workmanship, kind of an artistic thing, so to speak, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Colossians 3, 9 and 10. First of all, some negatives. Don't lie because you've put off the old self. That, that uh, relation we had under Adam, being in Adam, we have been delivered from that, crucified, resurrected, and now we are in Christ. So we put off the one, but we have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And then look at this other image language in 2 Corinthians 3. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, this is in a bigger context where Moses had to wear a veil because his glory was fading, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. If we're looking at the Lord, what image is being referred to there was the image of Christ. Uh, 1 Peter 1. Uh, is this this section which ends, you shall be holy for I am holy. There is this, this correspondence there. 1 John 3, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. And you say, well, okay, Bill, well, that's future. But look at what the hope does now. We shall see him as he is and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Once again, there's this correspondence. Jesus is pure. And so if his life dwells within, I am seeking that kind of purity as well. And then you see the text we read earlier uh, there and and the, the correspondence between eternal life being in the Son and we are in the Son. And so 
I think, I hope we have made the point that there, one way of answering the question, what am I here for, dare we say it as simple as kind of the elementary Sunday school class, I'm to be like Jesus. And there is an ability to be like Jesus because he is in me. All right, let's, let's flesh this out a little bit. First of all, um, and some of these points are pretty short, this one is, um, but what this does not mean, this does not mean our self is obliterated. It doesn't mean that as if this group of people are growing in conformity to Jesus Christ, that we will all look alike, speak alike, act alike, have the same values, interests, etc. That is not what is here. Um, that is not what is, what is meant by this. Um, but we are, to, we are to seek that for which we were made for, to know God and to love God above all else, and that joy will follow. Uh, one of the interesting things is in this culture, there is such uh, there is such a push toward individuality, and and it's just rampant. It's militant that I will seek to please myself. And what is interesting is when you follow that from a worldly viewpoint, what actually happens if we try to just seek the, to please ourselves. We're not going to find joy, we're not going to find fulfillment, and we're not going to please ourselves. It's a complete, this statement that is here is in opposition, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not being clear myself, to have the life of Christ lived out in us is in, a, a com, in complete opposition to the present culture's interest in individualism. But let me go to the second thing. What does this mean? Think for a moment, another verse, Genesis chapter 1. God says, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we, man and woman, are made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. Paul will write in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So what we're saying is that living in and out of our union with Christ actually means we become more and more human, more and more ourselves. Which is also to say, of course, that we are glorifying God. Now stay with me for a minute, because I, I think this is important. Obvious, I put it in the sermon. But let me, um, let me give you a few quotes of others just to help us understand this concept. There's a philosopher, Peter Kreft. He writes... Interesting observation. He says, we, we are half men. Jesus is the perfect man. We are 
inhuman humans. Obviously because of sin, the corruption of sin, the twistedness of sin. He is perfect humanity. We are alienated from ourselves. He is perfectly himself. And he ends his statement by saying, he, Jesus, he is more us than we are. What an interesting observation. To seek to be like the Lord is to become really human. Blaise Pascal from obviously years and years ago said, not only do, not only do we only know God through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the gateway to true knowledge of God. Not only is that true, he says, but we only know ourselves through Jesus Christ. Even Karl Barth wrote, Jesus is, quote, the real man. And even Kevin, one as reliable, in my estimation, as Kevin DeYoung puts it this way, God does, God does want you, says it well, God does want you to be the real you. Sounds like a worldly message, doesn't it? Everybody, all these voices from culture saying, be yourself, be the real you. And Kevin DeYoung saying, God does want you to be the real you. He does want you to be true to yourself. But the you he is talking about is the you that you are by grace, not by nature. What does a real man, what does a real woman, what does a real person look like? Look at Jesus. What is a human being supposed to be? Look at Jesus' life. I want to take a statement from Calvin because it is, when I read this, I was just struck by at least how his language, uh, I guess it was in, done in French or whatever he wrote in Latin, I don't know, but when they've done the English translation of the main commentaries of Calvin, he's quoting or commenting on 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Listen to, listen to this language of Peter. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. His divine power, that is God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and great promises. So all of these promises come to us. And it says, so that through them, through the promises of salvation, all that's included in the gospel, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is Calvin's quote. We must consider from whence it is that God raises us up to such a height of honor we know how abject is the condition of our nature that God then should make himself ours so that all his things should in a manner become our things. The greatness of his grace cannot be sufficiently conceived by our minds. Therefore, this consideration alone ought to be abundantly sufficient to make us renounce the world and to carry us aloft to heaven. 
And he says toward the end, he says that the end of the gospel, that's a purpose statement. The end or the purpose of the gospel is to render us eventually conformable to God. And if we may so speak, to deify us. I was shocked when I read that. Because we all know, that, and Calvin, by the way, to his credit, he goes on and, and fleshes it out full, you know, makes a more uh, modified statement. But that's what God is doing. In saving a person, he brings them into union with Christ. And he therefore wants that life. He, he not only wants it, he is purposing it. He is working. He is going to relate to you in such a way, and we'll get into some of this, that you will begin to grow more and more into conformity with Christ. And you will find out, oh, this is what it means to live. This is what it means to be human. An astounding thing. Our destiny is not only to see Christ, but also to be like him. So third, third main point. Implications then of our union with Christ, of this destiny. Um, one of the things is boasting in your failures. By nature, we resist vulnerability. We hate to see our weaknesses exposed. Much, much less, we don't want to really boast about them. We usually think with sorrow about our sins, our failures, and, and certainly there is an appropriateness to that. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones has to say in his classic book on spiritual depression about sin. And he would say, Martin Lloyd-Jones was... Wonderful, wonderful preacher. He understands that when we commit sin, yes, the Holy Spirit comes and there's conviction and there's repentance and there's the desire to uh, receive fresh forgiveness and those things. But he's speaking in this area of depression. He's speaking about people who just feel like I'm just such a sinner. Uh, There's this one sin. There's this one habit that keeps rising up. And he says... In this, he's, he, the sermon comes from Paul's treatment in Timothy, um, where Paul says, I was a murderer, I was a blasphemer, uh, all of those things. So Paul is confessing his sin, okay? But what does Paul do? Says, does, he says, does, does Paul then say, I am unworthy to be a preacher of the gospel? In fact, he says the exact opposite. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. And goes on. When Paul looks at the past and therefore is looking at his sin, and he's going to, Lloyd-Jones is saying, as we look at the past, at our sins, and he sees a sin, he does not stay in a corner and say, I am not fit to be a Christian. I have done such terrible things. Not at all. What he does, what it does to him, its effect upon him is to make him praise God. 
I found that an astounding statement. He glories in grace and says, And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That is the way to look at your past. So if you look at your past and are depressed, it means that you are listening to the devil. That's pretty insightful. Because where is our identity? Our identity is in Christ with all of the blessings that flow from that. And so we, live, we continue to live. We continue to go forward. We are not driven back by, by failures. Secondly, in suffering, everything that happens to us, good and bad, everything we strive for can be interpreted through this prism, this image of God being restored in us. That's what Paul will say in Romans 5, 3. We rejoice in our sufferings, the apostle says. Not that suffering is joyful or good in itself, but you have a context and a horizon that makes any hardship endurable, even redeemable. Every ounce of suffering becomes a stepping stone as God's workmanship is being perfected in you. It helps us to reassess what it means to win, so to speak, in our lives. Job promotions, bonuses, um, Athletic accomplishments, every accomplishment, every promotion, every trophy actually can become a hurdle, something that might lead us away from the image of Christ. Knowing Christ and being conformed to his image is the answer also in days, you might say, of success. Your win is to become a true human being after the image of Christ, the true human, to become more like Jesus, dependent as Jesus was, obedient as Jesus was, humble as Jesus was, compassionate uh, as Jesus was, uh, uh, someone who loves as Jesus loves. That's the win. That's where the win is. And these other, once again, these other earthly attractions, accomplishments, and and it can be great distractions to us. Finally, in this one category, we've got to believe it's possible to change. And it is possible to change precisely for the relationship that we have. We are in union with Christ, and He will seek and work and to live his life, to have our lives brought into conformity with his. And finally, we don't despair. I've already touched on this, but it's obvious that we fail. This, is, uh, this sounds incredible. You mean, you mean I'm supposed to really think that I can be more and more like Jesus? Absolutely. Absolutely, it's possible precisely because his life is in you. And so we obviously think, well, well, I still see, even against my best intentions, I still see too much of Romans 7, perhaps, um, there. Let me remind you of something C.S. Lewis said. 
He's speaking about failure. He's speaking about purity. It's in his, the book, Mere Christianity. And he's speaking about purity and chastity. And he says that it's very difficult, of course. He says you've got to ask for God's help. Even when you've done so, it may seem to you for a long time that no help, no less help than you need is being given. He says, never mind. After each failure... Ask forgiveness, pick yourself up, and try again. Now, he doesn't stop there. It's going to go on. But he, sa- he elaborates. He says, sometimes that God wants us to learn that basic process in dealing with all kinds of things, failure in chastity, failure in courage, failure in love, etc. Uh, learn the process before working on actually curing the specific issue. He says it cures our illusions about ourselves and teaches us to depend on God. We learn on the one hand that we cannot trust ourselves even in our best moments. That's a great lesson to learn. We can't trust ourselves even when we think we are on top of it spiritually. And he says, on the other hand, we need not despair even in our worst moments. And I love the way he ends this paragraph. The only fatal thing is to sit down content with anything less than perfection. We could have ended that sentence with anything less than the image and character of Christ. I thought that was an insightful thing. So it's only as we grasp our union with Christ that we'll be able to fall to sin and not despair, to get up again, and not feel ashamed to keep striving and see God changes from one degree of glory to another. That text in 2 Corinthians 3. What should you be doing? What should I be doing? Paul says in Ephesians 1.4, God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy. That's a message we often don't like to hear. But when you understand that to be holy is to be truly human, like Jesus, I think that puts an attractiveness on it that hopefully will inspire you to say, Lord, you who are present with me, live your life in and through my speech through the things I do, in the various callings of work, with family, with various aspects of life in the church. This is the purpose to place over every new day and every activity. To pursue holiness, not as some bar to to claw and climb and, and grasp for, but as an ennobling compliment to live into, to become human, because humanity is to be like Jesus, and we have his life. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, would you give us grace to believe Give us grace to believe that sin is not the stronger, that Satan is not the victor, that 
some of the long-standing sins that so easily trip us, repeatedly trip us, are not going to be the victor. But that you are able, and we would invite you afresh, we would pray afresh, Lord Jesus, cause your life through the power of your Spirit to dwell richly in us, that we might be more and more like yourself. Let us see, in a sense, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, to behold the glory of who you are, to be enthralled with that, to be in love with what we see in you. O Lord, take the dimness of our souls away and let us be ravished by the beauty of your person And the prospect of that is what we are heading for ultimately. All those saints in glory have seen this accomplished. Lord, continue the work even this evening in our own lives we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.